Okay, good morning, everyone. Great to see you all again, and we're excited to continue in this uh, four-part series on Advent, and as Steve said, a little deeper dive into the meaning of Christmas. Uh, Today, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2, so if you want to open your scriptures to Matthew 2, page 800, if you're using one of the Bibles in the pew rack in front of you. And I want to start with a bit of a mind-reading exercise, if we could, just real quickly. When I count to three, I want all of you to think of your very favorite subject when you were in school, and I'm going to see if I can sort of channel what you're thinking about and announce what that subject is, okay? So on the count of three, just really focus hard on your favorite subject when you were a student. One, two, three. No, don't say it. No, just... just. <laughs> Just think about it. I'm going to read your mind, okay? Math wasn't my first guess. Okay, you... All right, I got it. World history. No? No, 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 okay. (laughs) Most of you might relate to this slide. What I do in history class, red is the listen, green is click my pen... And blue is, think of what I could do if I went back in time with modern weapons and technology. (laughs) Or maybe this one. History is what what you're learning in history, but mostly how to write an essay as fast as humanly possible, right? Midnight the night before. Well, to do that deeper dive into the Christmas story, and here in Matthew 2 this morning, Sorry, but we're going to have to do just a quick little world history review because it really gives us a depth to what's going on in, uh, in the story here. So I promise it'll be short, but hang with me here for a few moments. So in the century leading up to Jesus' birth, <clears throat> excuse me, there were basically two dominant world powers. We all know about the Romans right, in control of the land of Israel where Jesus is born. But off to the east is the Parthian Empire, which was formerly known as the Medo-Persian Empire. And these two world-dominating empires were often at loggerheads with one another. As a matter of fact, three separate times in the century leading up to Jesus' birth, they had a major battle, a major clash And this always seemed to happen up in the northern part of the pink area here, whatever that color is, uh, up in Syria, up in that area. And one of those battles in particular is very important for what we're going to talk about next. And these are the two major characters in the story that we're going to be looking at this morning, at least the two that we're going to focus in on. One is Herod, and the other is the wise men, or literally right from the Greek, the Magi. Now, Herod, if you read your New Testament, your Gospels and the book of Acts, there are seven seven different individuals that go by the title, a political title, Herod. Seven different individuals. The one that we're talking about here in Matthew 2 is one popularly known as Herod the Great. Now, Herod was a descendant of Esau. He's not a Jew. And yet his ancestors had converted to Judaism, and so Herod was raised as a Jew. 
practicing the Jewish religion. But he was not truly Jewish. Now, something you need to know about Herod is he was a ruthless political animal. He was named as the governor of Galilee, so back a slide, way up there where those battles happened. When he was 25 years old, he was named as the governor of Galilee. And this is very important for our story. When that battle happened, Herod actually had to flee for his life as a 25-year-old young ruler to save his life from this Parthian invasion. And he never forgot it. Herod's father was good buddies with Julius Caesar. (laughs) And Herod actually schemed and murdered his way to the throne of Jerusalem. And he was named by Mark Antony the king of the Jews. That was his title. He was a great builder. He built the temple that uh, Jesus and the disciples would have had reference to during Jesus' earthly ministry. He built the great seaport of Caesarea, the fortress of Masada, the Herodium. Fantastic builder, fantastic visionary leader, but he was plagued by depression and paranoia, and it got worse and worse the older Herod became. For example, he killed his wife because he thought she was a threat to his rule. He drowned his brother-in-law in a swimming pool. He killed three of his sons, and he sacrificed 300 military leaders. And think about this. On the day he died, as he knew his death was approaching, he left orders that hundreds of Jewish leaders should be slain on the day of his death to ensure that there would be mourning in Jerusalem. Now, Herod's true loyalty was to no one else other than his own sovereign self. Depressed, paranoid, desperately clinging to power. That is Herod's life legacy. Now, the other characters here in the story of Matthew 2 are the magi or the wise men, as our text calls them. Uh, These guys are from a priestly tribe way over there in the east. And you may uh, remember them from the book of Daniel, if you've read the book of Daniel. And Daniel, when he was taken to Babylon in uh, the captivity, he became part of this group of wise men. As a matter of fact, he ascended to be the greatest or the chief of the wise men. Now, this, this group of men, they were purported, believed to have magical powers They were skilled particularly in astrology, astronomy, the divination of dreams. And they came, by the time of Daniel, they had come to great political power in the Babylonian uh, Empire. And right up until the time of Rome, the the Parthian wise men were known as the king makers. That is, no one could come to political power in the kingdom of the Medes and Persians unless you were approved by the wise men. And they reported seeing stars, signs in the heavens when a ruler was born. Now, Daniel, faithful worshiper of Yahweh, taken into captivity, becomes the chief of the wise men, this 500 years earlier, right? 
And he leaves a witness behind. He leaves a testimony behind that these kingmakers, these Medo-Persian priests, if you will, had never forgotten. Daniel 2 talks about a kingdom that is coming that will never be destroyed. And all through these five centuries since Daniel's time, these pagan astrologers, their astrology and astronomy, study of the heavens, it was all mixed up with this doctrine that Daniel left them that there's a coming king whose kingdom is never going to be destroyed. So think about it. These guys professionally have been watching the skies for 500 years. Well, Herod is now near the end of his life as we come to Matthew 2, and he's more paranoid than ever. As a matter of fact, Josephus said it this way, or Macrobius said it this way, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. (laughs) And for a supposedly Jewish leader, that's quite a statement. Now, interestingly also, history tells us, we're almost done, I see some eyelids starting to come down, history tells us at this particular time that Herod's army was out of town, and here he is on the throne, defenseless, his place in Jerusalem. So let's listen into the story again, familiar story to us, and I want you to notice Matthew's skillful contrast of these characters, the way, the way the main characters in the story are responding to Jesus, particularly Herod, the Jewish religious leaders, and these men from the east, these astrologers, these wise men. Matthew wants us to look at how they're responding, and he wants each one of us as we read the story to, to think about our own attitude about who the insiders and the outsiders are when it comes to God's love and salvation. And I think he also wants us to look deeply and reflect on how we are personally responding to the news of Jesus' birth. Well, we pick it up here in verse 1 and 2. The setting of the story, let's read it here. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, just a tiny little hamlet outside of Jerusalem, a couple of miles during the reign of King Herod. And Matthew is very careful to remind us who it is we're talking about. Herod, the paranoid king. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands, all the way over there in Parthia, they they arrived in Jerusalem, and look at what they're asking. Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, historians believe that this wasn't just a couple of guys on camels. Sorry for your, uh, any, no, no offense to your nativity scene intended, but there, there likely were a thousand or more cavalry attending these people. These are powerful kingmakers. And it was, it was obvious when they came into Jerusalem, and it would be obvious what they were there to do. So think of this. People, soldiers, escorting these kingmakers coming into Jerusalem. We don't know how many there were. Text doesn't say three. 
We get the three from the three gifts that they brought, but all we know is there's more than one, right? It's plural. They're, They're wise men, magi. And they report that they have seen something. They have seen a star in the east. And they understand, obviously understand this star to be pointing to that king and that kingdom that Daniel talked about, this one is never going to be destroyed. Now, it raises a question, doesn't it? Is God okay with astrology and stargazing and, you know, mystics and, uh, and soothsayers and things like that? Well, we got a problem, right? Because Deuteronomy, Leviticus, both, it's very, very clear. God prohibits people to be looking to the stars for guidance in their lives. Matter of fact, you could be, it was, a, it was a penalty worthy of death under the old covenant. So no, God does not approve of stargazing, but God is a gracious God. And Craig Keener says it well, for one special event in history, the God who rules the heavens chooses to reveal himself where pagans happen to be looking. <laughs> They see the star and they recognize its significance, pagan though they were. And they come into Jerusalem and they're asking this question that when Herod heard it must have felt like a slap upside the head. Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? Herod was not born king of the Jews. He was appointed by Mark Antony. Here's someone with every right to the throne in Jerusalem. And Herod knows it. Well, that begins the conflict, right? So we pick it up in verse 3. And I want you to notice now how Herod is responding and how the Jewish religious leaders are responding. First of all, Herod. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. There were people that were selling T-shirts this week on the, on the street in Jerusalem back then when Herod ain't happy and nobody ain't happy, right? They were terrified. If Herod is disturbed, everybody's going to be disturbed because people's lives are going to be on the line. Now, Herod starts asking questions. He starts with the where question. Look what he does, verse 4. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law, and he asked them, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? He asked the where question. And look how quickly they answered. They don't have to say, you know, let us, let us get our computer software going and we'll do some research and we'll get back to you on that. They know exactly, immediately they answer. This was probably part of their catechism as little children uh, to learn where is the Messiah going to be born. Micah 5.2 says it very clearly. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, of Judah. Here it is, verse 6. You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. That's Messiah language. And isn't it interesting that these Jewish leaders, they were not looking for a political system or a new world order or something. They were looking for a person they understood to be the Messiah. And they knew exactly where he was to be born. And so they answer Herod appropriately by just quoting the Scripture. 
Well, Herod's not done with his questions. He's got a when question next. Look at verse 7. Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them when the star first appeared. This is important in the story in just a moment. And then he told them, verse 8, you guys go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. These pagan astrologers understand the significance of this person, and their, their response is, this is someone we should worship and acclaim as the king of this kingdom that's never going to be destroyed. And isn't it encouraging and wonderful that Herod says, hey guys, tell me when and then find him, and I want to go just like you and worship him too. Well, they may have been encouraged by that. We don't know, but we are not as readers of the modern story because we know Herod is up to something. This scheming, murderous, political animal desperately trying to hold on to his throne. He understands. If a star has appeared, it means a ruler is born, and this is a threat to his throne. Well, just a side note, isn't it interesting that although God graciously guides these magi to Jerusalem with a star they've seen, the real guidance for where and who he is, who the Messiah is, it comes from the Scriptures, not from the stars. Matthew 5 is quoted. So, notice what the Jewish religious leaders do. Herod is fearing the king. What do the Jewish religious leaders do? Um, apparently nothing. Apparently nothing. It's a head knowledge. We know where he's going to be born, and exactly, we quote the Scripture. Got it all down by memory, but then they seem to just be forgetful and apathetic about it. Instead of saying, we'll volunteer to lead a contingency to go find him so we can worship him too, there's, a, uh, there's no mention of the Jewish religious leaders being interested in going to find Jesus. No, they seem to forget, or maybe they're fearful too. Fearful because they are in cahoots with the Roman authorities, Herod being the chief one. They're people concerned about their own status, their own political stability, and they don't want to lose their gig. And so they dismiss this idea and just stay in the comfort of the palace with Herod. Well, the story continues with the resolution that is one of our favorite parts of the Christmas story, right? Look at it in verse 9. After this interview, the wise men went their way. And look at the grace of God again to these men. The star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw that star, they were filled with joy. The Greek word is mega. They had mega joy when they saw this star. Once again, God is not into astrology. He forbids it. But in his grace and mercy to these pagan seekers, 
He's communicating to them in a way that they would understand, and yet the clear teaching is coming only from the Scriptures. There's all kind of conjecture by people who do not believe in the authority of the Scripture that, was this a comet? Was it some kind of a meteorite? Or they're trying to find naturalistic explanations for how this thing happened. It's very clear. This is a supernatural event. And God, who rules the heavens, it's no problem at all for Him to signal a star to come and do His bidding, and so He does it. And notice what we read here in verse uh, 11. They they come and they find the child, verse 11, in a house. It's in a house, not a manger. And the word here is child, not baby, right? At this point, Jesus may have been as old as two years by the time the wise men have made this arduous journey. And look how they respond. They, they see the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed and worshiped him. Again, a side note, they're not worshiping Mary, they're worshiping the Son of Mary, the Son of God, the Lord Jesus. And then they open their treasure chest that they had brought, these kingmakers, and they give him these three very interesting gifts, which is why the idea of three wise men, that it could have been two guys with three gifts, who knows. So the first gift is gold. Gold is the possession of kings. This speaks of royalty. And they are saying, they are recognizing by this gift, Jesus is the king of the Jews, born into this. And then they give him frankincense. Now, in the temple, even in the east, they kept frankincense in special containers in the temple, and and frankincense was used in offerings to the deity. This gift, you ever smelled frankincense? It's a very distinctive uh, aroma. It speaks of deity. It speaks of worship to God. And then they also gave him myrrh. Myrrh in this day was used as a burial spice. And that speaks of Jesus' humanity. God, the King, but fully man as though he were not God. Fully God as though he were not man. Jesus, the God-man. And look at verse 12, when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. God is, again, communicating to these men in in ways they would understand, and their response is, after worshiping Jesus, their response is to obey the instructions they've been given, and probably with some fear of their own safety knowing Herod and his reputation. Well, the story concludes, the part we're going to at least read here today, down through verse 18, with after the wise men have gone back to the east, the Lord appears to Joseph now in a dream and says to him, get up and go to Egypt with the child and his mother and stay there until I tell you to return. And here's the reason, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph and Mary go to Egypt. Matthew tells us this actually becomes a fulfillment of Hosea 11.1, sort of a typological prophecy that as God called Israel, his son, the nation, out of Egypt in the Exodus, He's doing it again. He's calling his son out of Egypt. And so Jesus spends a time with his parents in Egypt. 
And look at Herod's response now, verse 16. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. That two year there, interesting because it's probably what the wise men told Herod. This is how long it's been since we've seen the star. Two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. And Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. This is from Jeremiah 31. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Now, this reference here to Herod killing all the infants in Bethlehem causes some folks problems because there's no historical reference. If you look at secular history, Josephus, the Jewish historian, he doesn't even mention it. And it's likely because Bethlehem was a tiny little sleepy, sleepy farm town. You know, not that many people lived there. This, this could have been as few as a dozen or less or maybe a little bit more children, each one a terrible tragedy. You know, but nothing like the 1.6 billion who have been slaughtered since 1980 around the world through abortion, but still a great tragedy. And uh, the folks in Bethlehem would have known certainly about this. But um, Matthew, by telling us this story, is calling every one of us to reflect on a personal decision that we all need to make. So let's conclude it by thinking about these three responses to to King Jesus. Herod fears him. He fears him. You know, if we're all honest, the way we're born as sinners, and even with the work of redemption in our lives, there's still a little bit of Herod in every one of us. In other words, We don't like the idea of surrendering our sovereignty to someone else who is the ultimate and supreme sovereign. And so Herod rejects. He refuses. As it's been well said by someone, you you either submit to Jesus or you'll be destroyed by Jesus, right? Last week we, we talked about finding refuge in Him If you've done that, you'll never need to find refuge from him. His first coming, gentle, meek. His second coming, he comes to bring justice to his world and restore righteousness to his world. And only those who have gone to him for refuge will find solace and have forgiveness and enjoy this relationship with this wonderful king whose kingdom will never end. Now, Herod is indicative of all those who fear giving up their own control of their life, and so they refuse to believe in Jesus and bow to the reality of who He is. Then there are the uh, Jewish religious leaders who are just forgetful of Him. Probably this one here in the United States of America, in our experience as American Christians, this one we need to pay attention to. With all of the information and the, you know, industrial complex that Christmas is in our country, uh, everything except the true meaning. This is about the birth of the king who came 
to die for us to restore our relationship with God. Oh, much easier to think about Santa Claus and, you know, Black Friday and all the stuff that goes with that. And all that's got its place and can be great fun so long as we don't lose the central message of what Christmas truly is about, the birth of the king, whose kingdom is going to be forever and ever. No, the magi, the wise men, call on all of us to respond in the same way, to seek Jesus, to bow in worship, to give to Him, to obey His commands. And no doubt, they went home with the story of this king and this miraculous event and the story of Jesus' greatness, this king of the Jews, was no doubt told in the courts of the kingdom of Parthia. The Scripture makes clear from Psalm 2, God has established His King, the Lord Jesus. And there's a day coming when He will return, and what a promise, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Fear Him, forget Him, or fall down with the wise and worship Him. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your faithfulness, Your grace to us. Thank You, Lord, for this simple story and the details of the story that You, through the Spirit of God and the human author, have given to us to think about. That You, indeed, have sent Jesus to be the King promised from the Old Testament. And we all have a decision of how we respond to this King. I pray, Lord, if anyone here today sees in Herod a picture of their own life, that they would hear your invitation of mercy and forgiveness and grace, and that they would lay down their resistance, lay down their rebellion, and come to you in simple faith today to ask for forgiveness through King Jesus. May we as your people not be forgetful of you, not be apathetic about what you are doing, but may we be eager to see even today where you are at work in the world so we can be part of that and involved in that. And Lord, in this season, may we as your people with a new vigor, a new commitment, a new dedication, truly give ourselves back to you who have given yourself for us. May we, Lord, find Christ to be the, the center of everything in our own thinking, in our time in the Scriptures, in our time together as families through this season, and certainly as the corporate people of God as we come together. May Christ be central and truly King in all of our hearts. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.